0: Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Samm Homage to the Blessed Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Homage to the Blessed Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Namo sadantos uchedoye hulahudi san miao san putosye. Shan Shan We Miao Fa, Bai Qian Wan Ji Nan Zhao Yu, Wo Jin Jian Wan De Sho Yan Ji Ru Lai Zhen Shi The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shurfu fu Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to our sutra lecture. We're explaining the uh, Ten Grounds chapter. We're on the second ground of the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra. We're going to start by chanting the name of the sutra and the buddhas and bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly. And you'll find that on the front cover of your text right here. <laughs> Namo da fang wang fo a enzyme up, and if we could also get the cable mic up, that would be good. Okay, uh, please turn, if you will, to page 18 and 19, 18 and 19 in your text. Phil, is this this up? Needs to be loud. Okay. We are looking through the the ten evil and the ten good deeds, and we've uh, explained two evil deeds with the mouth, and we have two to go. Tonight is number three, and it's called evil mouth, bad mouth, and it means profanity. So, we'll look into that tonight. Top, top of page eighteen. Here we go. U over to the right. The offense of harsh speech also causes living beings to fall into the three evil paths. If they're born among people, they have two kinds of retribution. One, they will always hear disagreeable sounds. Two, they'll be involved in many lawsuits. All right, there we go. Those are the retributions of profanity. A lot, uko, harsh speech, bad mouth, literally evil mouth, and nobody is unclear about what that means. Uh, words that come out of the mouth that cause pain in others. the The best, the best description of uh, What it means to say harsh speech is found on page 9. Page 9 is part of our chapter, and I read it the first time. I just laughed out loud because it was such a profound and thorough description of what evil speech sounds like, what harsh speech sounds like, what is the function of profanity. Uh, So I'm just going to uh, go over it in English. Harsh speech is cruel, malicious speech, coarse, wild speech, speech that brings suffering to others, speech that provokes anger and hatred in others, blunt speech, furtive speech, vile and evil speech, cheap and vulgar speech, speech unpleasant to hear, speech that does not delight the listener, angry, hateful speech, speech that burns the heart like fire, speech bound up in resentment, heated, irritating speech, disagreeable speech, displeasing speech, speech that can destroy oneself and others, and all such types of speech as these, he completely abandons, Bodhisattva completely abandons. So there we have harsh speech in a nutshell, and that is harsh speech to a T. That's thorough explanation of what it means to speak harshly. And uh, let's look at the text, continue. Let's go on down to make sure we understand. I'm back on page 18 now. So that is harsh speech. That's the the Bodhisattva's own description, what harsh speech consists of. And he says, this can cause us, this can make us lose our human body. Harsh speech is such a... a powerful way to use your words that it has an effect way beyond the size of it because harsh speech is invisible. You can't even see it when somebody is speaking harshly. There's no sign of it, but uh, the effect of it is very, very powerful. It can make you lose your human body and become a ghost, a hell dweller, or an animal, says the sutra. Suppose you also have good karma as well, and along with the harsh speech you do, you still have wholesome, uh, your credit side of your karmic ledger is also strong. So you come back as a human. You've got a human body still, but you've brought with you the karma of harsh speech. You get two kinds of retribution in that case. One is that your ears always hear ua, shang, same word as the description of harsh speech. So you hear harsh sounds. We translated it as unpleasant or disagreeable, disagreeable sounds. You hear lots of nasty sounds. Um, it doesn't have to be speech, but it often is. The things that come to your ears are really hard to hear. But it can also mean loud and Loud sounds, just scary, big, disquieting, unsettling sounds. Just bad noises come to you a lot because from your mouth issued bad noises. It's, this is pretty easy to visualize the circular root. The seeds that you plant bring back the fruit that you harvest. As is the seed, so is the fruit. As is the cause, so is the effect. So this is uh, that's fairly clear. You hear those sounds a lot because you created them. But the second one is where it's interesting, right? What's the second kind of retribution? Yin do your words bring many zheng song? Zheng is arguments. Song is lawsuits, cases. Song like court cases. So you find yourself involved in lots of court cases, litigation, where you're arguing in front of the judge. Um, and you could all, if, if it's not that you're in ca- in court in a lawsuit—it means that you're constantly defending yourself. Somebody who uses harsh speech a lot will always find themselves saying. Things like, that's not what I meant. You didn't hear me. No, wait a minute, you took that wrong. Don't... No, 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 that's not, no, 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 wait a minute, that's not what I said. Somebody who speech, speaks harshly will find themselves doing that a lot. No, no, no. Meaning, you misunderstand. So, your words will always bring about debate. because of the profanity that you speak. All right? So, that's what the sutra says. And, if that's your reality, then, <coughs> the sutra would suggest that the way to change that, if you don't like being in a situation where you're always hearing uh, sounds of struggle or suffering, struggle and, and conflict, or, or, that you're always misunderstood, that maybe the fault is in the words that you spoke, you yourself spoke. Maybe you need to speak more gently, speak in a way that accords with uh, refinement, find something other than four letter words to say. All right, that's what the text says. Now, let's apply that. Um, Last week I mentioned as we were preparing for, for this week the, uh, the example of that movie. There was a Paul Newman movie in 1977 called Slapshot, and I only bring it up. I'm not recommending it. It was a comedy, and it wasn't a great film to begin with, but it was memorable because the, in the movie called Slapshot, it was about hockey, and it was about a third-rate hockey team Paul Newman was the coach, and he recruited the guys in uh, Charlestown, was the name of the town. He recruited the players for his third-rate hockey team to be brutal, not to be skillful, but just to be the baddest. So instead of learning to skate well, they just learned to body check. And they, they made their reputation by being the baddest the meanest. And along with that, the way the scriptwriter, who by the way was a woman, interestingly enough, the way she wrote it was full of profanity. And I checked it out. I went back to, to look at some of the reviews. And here is Richard Schickles, who used to write for Time magazine. And I don't think he still does. Richard Schickle was the, the movie reviewer for Time. And he said, about Slapshot back in 1977. He says, The talk is going to cause most of the talk. There's nothing in the history of movies to compare with Slapshot for consistent, low-level obscenity of expression. Its producers, besides featuring an R rating more prominently than is customary, are also warning parents that its language is probably too rough for most kids. That's all to the good. Better to be up front about the matter than to apply a censorious pencil to a script that derives considerable power not only from what its characters say but from how they say it, i.e. grossly. So in other words, the uh, Slapshots dialogue has got more profanity, more four-letter words in it than any movie in history to that time, but it's also the way they say it. Is really objectionable, really coarse and loud and foul, and the way um, the way entertainment goes is once uh, a new low has been set, rarely do people say, "Hey, we shouldn't do that anymore. Let's pick up our tone a little bit and stop showing so much violence or." gratuitous sexuality, or profanity. Usually, once it's hit the new low, people go to that low regularly to match it. After the movie Slapshot, it became normal for movies to include more four-letter words. So that was always pointed to as kind of the watershed. And at the time, back in the 70s, I was already a monk, so I wasn't watching movies I, didn't, I never saw all of Slapshot but I just heard about it being the filthiest, the, the potty mouth movie a real potty mouth movie and from that time uh, the door was open and movies could use more four letter words they could use more profanity and it became a standard thing for movies to do to have four letter words and TV at the time uh-uh. TV absolutely taboo even cable, but cable wasn't a big thing back in the seventies. It didn't really exist very much. Um, cable, bit by bit, allowed most anything to be said, and then uh, network TV could would allow ca- characters to curse. So that's kind of the the history of how four letter words became common in public. Hearing, so maybe you, at your maybe in your home, nobody at home swears very much. Turn the TV on, and suddenly you learn how. Here's how you do it because the characters on the TV show are using all the four-letter words, and that's how it goes. Um, I know in. Uh, countries have different customs. For example, in Italy um, nudity in Italy on TV is considered to be uh, not such a big deal. Um, Europe was always ahead of North America in that regard. That's to say American Canada. Um, In Asia it's still rare, but with the coming, I know in Taiwan, with the coming of cable channels, uh, standards loosened, standards relaxed. Now in Taiwan on cable, you can find almost everything that you could find in Detroit or Dallas or Cleveland um, or Chicago. So uh, there's no, there seems to be nothing taboo anymore. And language is really indicative of people's states of mind. Um, I remember when there was a time in uh, the U.S., back, probably stopped around the 60s and 70s, when there were large regional differences in language. And you could hear, you could go to Texas and hear a real Texas accent that you didn't hear outside of Texas and Arkansas, probably. And if you went to the Deep South, if you went to Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you heard an English being spoken that was unique to the Deep South. And if you went to Virginia, you heard a different English being spoken. If you went to Boston, you heard a different English. If you went to New York, different boroughs of New York had different accents. And California had Northern California. There was a valley girl accent in Southern California and Seattle. Seattle has a distinct accent. Of course, Canada is Canadian, Canadian English. Um, so that was a time when places were, had their distinct accents. Nowadays, with TV in particular, um, there seems to be kind of a whitewashing of American English. Everybody more or less talks the same way, and the extremes of regional dialects are disappearing. So um, it's rare to get a place that has really, really distinct characteristics anymore. So that's the sound of the dialect. But what about if you listen to how people choose their words? That's something that doesn't seem to be regional as much as it is what? Class? Class? or culture. Um, I know uh, people who live by language, for example comedians, often um, are experts on language. And there was a time when certain comedians were called blue comedians. Uh, Lenny Bruce is a perfect example. Lenny Bruce who actually by the way is a Bay Area product Lenny Bruce was uh, famous for introducing four-letter words into his comedy routine and this this may be you know esoteric knowledge for people who don't keep up with with the culture this way but before Lenny Bruce you couldn't you didn't talk about certain things topics and you didn't use certain words you just didn't. And then after uh, Lenny Bruce softened things up a lot, he he got slapped with obscenity lawsuits. People actually sued him. They tried to censor Lenny Bruce's mouth, tried to clean his mouth up. But again, once one comedian does it, then two, and then three, and then four, and blue comics became pretty much the standard. So if you listen to if you have cable and watch comedy uh, channel, uh, most comedians will use four-letter words just as a standard, maybe every sentence sometimes. And that's humor, is the fact that they use these words. But I remember Bill Cosby, for example. Uh, I don't know if he still doesn't, but there was a long time when Bill Cosby, who is decidedly a family, I mean, Bill Cosby is very middle class, but one of the joyful things about his humor was it wasn't based on four-letter words. It wasn't based on the shock, or the ha 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 of oh, that's hits your ear. Mm, you know, four-letter word. Um, there was who was there was a Jewish comedian whose humor I've forgotten his name came from attacking. He was he was just aggressive and everything he whenever he showed up on your TV show you knew that he was going to talk harshly about you anybody know who it was who was it he was always bringing he was always making personal attacks on everybody what was his name this is 20 years ago and his humor came almost entirely from harsh speech he would just attack people and and talk bad badmouth people just it wasn't profanity so much but it was just aggressive hard, mean humor and the laughter from it was always hey, 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 because it was a large you could hear the pain in it as he would berate people and talk about their faults and so my point is to say that how we speak says a lot about the contents of our mind and the Buddha is saying it's so important that it can actually cause you to lose your human body. And yet, in popular culture, you think nothing of it. It's become standard to use four letter words all the time. Um, now, I maintain that everybody knows that four letter words still carry the same, they're still low. Why? If a religious person, let's say your local Catholic priest, started using the F word, everybody would go, excuse me, Father, uh, are you not feeling well today? You know, could I offer you an aspirin, Father? You know, Because you don't expect religious people to use the F word. That would be funny, wouldn't you think of it? Or some, you know, Baptist minister in in his sermon on Sunday morning says, "And the Lord is going to send you to a goddamned hell." You'd go, "Oops, wait a minute, who's getting sent to the hell, sir? Are you, what's wrong?" You know, it would be it would be like wrong for a religious person to use profanity. You you would definitely do a double take. What what did I hear that right? Suppose the local rabbi starts cursing you would think, oh my goodness, something's wrong here. Why? Because we know that profanity is still potty mouth. It's still low, right? It's, it's popular, it's still not okay, unless you don't care. So if we don't care, or if we want to be hip, maybe we use four-letter words because you know, it's like, they're, they're cool. Maybe that's why, I don't know. So I, luckily, I made it into the Sangha before it became hip to drop the F word in every sentence. So I never had to, to prove that I was hip or not. Or, you know, or not use it because I was unhip. So I, I'm the generation that when I hear four-letter words, I always notice. I never don 't notice that somebody's dropping f bombs left and right, and okay, all right for um, for emphasis, if you some people use profanity, they reserve it for a time when nothing else will do. There is a time when you know profanity carries a weight and if you if you use it as an expression of something extreme that you're trying to convey that's that's effective because it's some it's a it's an extreme of something but if you use it in every sentence then it's like okay how's your vocabulary you know like could you use some more adjectives or adverbs Do you, other than F word or something? Anyway, so it indicates uh, something. There's, maybe it's my ear, I don't know, but I'm, I'm really tuned in to when people use profanity and I always wonder, what, what's the effect? It loses effect just because it's used so often. So where do you go then when you want to express some extreme of feeling? You have to, you have to double it, say it twice or something. Or add mother to it, and then it's then it's stronger. Okay. So um, that's that's one aspect of uh, harsh speech. Um, I have a story about that, which is, uh, and I, it, it it involves the uh, it involves the F word. So I I can't say it, but uh, you'll know when I get there in the story. (laughs) Very funny. Um, When I was first investigating meditation, I lived in a temple in Kyoto called Antaiji. And this is a Zen temple from the Soto school. And Antaiji was nice because they really cultivated. They meditated three hours in the morning, three hours of zazen in the morning, and two hours of zazen in the afternoon, every day, five hours, every day, in silence, interspersed with uh, walking meditation. And once a month, for a week, at Antaiji, they did a silent seshin, a silent seven, a Zen retreat. Seven days in silence. And the the seshin was eight hours a day of zazen with walking in between. In silence. And they really did, really did do silence. It was silent. And this was the first time that I had done uh, seven days of meditation straight. This was 1969 and I was just barely, in, had my feet wet in meditation. And it was the very first time I'd ever tried to be silent. So I was reacting very strongly as much to the silence as I was to the sitting. My, my way of dealing with the pain in my legs was not very creative. It was called Tylenol. I used to pop Tylenol to get through the pain of my legs because they were killing me. I had never sat that long before. And the other thing that I did was I... Uh, ate an entire loaf of raisin bread in between sits. Down the hill from the, the monastery was a little, a little family store and they sold a raisin
1: pain. And she would sell me the
0: raisin bread for 10 cents or something and I would walk slowly back up the hill and stop the whole thing in my mouth slice after slice just to get past the pain of my leg. And uh, so the silence, however, was incredible. And just my mind just went in reverse, and I was spitting back all these songs that I had learned and TV commercials, and my brain would fix on some stupid melody, and I would sing it to myself 200 times in an hour, and on and on it's really humbling to realize what your brain picks up when you're not noticing that it's which is everything. It picks up everything. Every sense is right there. And then once you're silent, it just starts to vomit it all back out. So, silent. And, of course, I'm looking around thinking, boy, is everybody else doing the same thing I'm doing? What's going on? And no chance to talk. And there were uh, four Westerners at Antaiji. That was the thing about Antaiji was the uh, Zen master, whose name was Uchiyama Roshi, allowed Westerners to take part. So we were in there, and one guy was named Jeff, and he was from L.A., and one guy was named Steve, and Steve was from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Of course, I was from Toledo, and there was another fellow, uh, Tom Wright, who was still there, as a matter of fact. Uh, Tom came from, might have been from Seattle. So silence for seven days, and the last day, then down to the last period, and I'm really pushing hard because I want to sit through an entire period without Tylenol or Raisin a Big challenge for myself. And a uh, really emotional time to get through that. It was, you know, a lot of hard work for a 19-year-old kid on his own for the first time. And uh, <clears throat> so, sitting through it. And ding! It's over. We bow and stand up, and we. uh, The outside. Uchiyama was uh, famous for a lot of things. He was quite a remarkable man. His father was Japan's number one origami expert. His father could take one piece of paper, without cutting it, and fold it into a Buddha, this big, that the robe had three layers of robe. Only folding, not cutting. And it was a remarkable Amitabha, you know, and it looked just outstanding. And his dad had learned to do it. So Uchiyama, the junior, our, our teacher, Uchiyama Kosho, had learned how to do that. And he also had inherited chrysanthemums. He had chrysanthemums that were 300 years old. The same plant had been handed down from father to son to father to son, I think maybe mother to daughter, in the family for 300 years. Famous chrysanthemums. That's Japan for you. Famous chrysanthemums. These chrysanthemums are probably what? One month old maybe? So multiply that times 12 times 300. And you've got famous chrysanthemums. And this was October and when we started the sesshin uh, they weren't they were just all green when we came out they had bloomed and so we've been through 7 days of silence and and we're you know just all full of this energy like this and not a word was spoken not a word of japanese not a word of english and so we all come out kind of blinking out of the chan hall Throw open the Shoji panels into the, the main yard of the temple, and uh, uh, Steve from Michigan, who was a Marine at one point, comes out and he looks at the chrysanthemums and he goes, "Holy shit, man! The fucking chrysanthemums are blooming." <laughs> and I'm going, "Ah." Oh. <laughs> the first words out of his mouth, right? <laughs> They sure are, Steve. Yeah, the chrysanthemums are blooming. That's right, yeah. So it's like, ooh, that hit my ear just like breaking glass. (laughs) I thought, I'm so glad I don't swear. But that's the way Steve saw it. So So I'll never forget, every time I see chrysanthemums for the first time, I hear that (laughs) voice. Holy shit. Okay, good. So, that's one. Now, the thing about the second part, the lawsuits part, it means more than lawsuits. It means also argument that leads to prosecution. So, the words that you say don't just fall. Somebody picks them up and chews at them. Right? The, um, the zheng, the, on the second line there, the last word on the right-hand side, zheng, the left-hand part of the character says words, and the right-hand part means fight. So words that lead to conflict. Fighting words. If you use harsh speech a lot, you'll hear fighting words a lot. They come back to you as conflict and trouble. They're not sacred. They're not spiritual. They're not blessings. They're not healing. They're not instructions. They're not poetry. They're not rhythmic. They don't carry any learning value. Instead, people hear them and they go, What are you talking about? That's the power of harsh speech when it comes back. So, how about that as a as a a world to walk through? Right? So, um, I have a story about this. I'm I'm going to um, invite folks to to discuss this. Please, you know, talk about it, ask any questions as we go into it, because it's so common, this, to use harsh speech, that I don't think we even think about it as much anymore as we did. Certainly not to the degree of our sutra, where the Buddha is saying, whoa, not cool to speak harshly. I mean, you can, you're free to do it, anything you want, no problem, but... He says it's not, the rewards are not free. It's not, you don't get a free pass when you do that. Do anything you want, but be ready for what happens when you do. Um, This is an interesting story. This is a mysterious story. And I have to say, um, I learned something from from this experience. I was at a place called the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies <coughs> in the summer of nineteen seventy two. This is before I met Mr. Hua. <coughs> <coughs> and I was there as um, the college student in residence. Uh, <coughs> and there were two different seminars taking place that I was participating in. One was called the Asian Thought Seminar. And in the Asian Thought Seminar, I was there as a, someone who had been to Japan, who had experienced a Zen monastery, who had uh, uh, been studying Asian languages, Asian culture, and Asian religions as well. The people in the seminar were people of significance in American culture. We had Catherine Graham who was the editor of the Washington Post. We had Seymour uh, Topping, who was the managing editor of the New York Times. We had uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was the Democratic candidate for for the presidency. We had a uh, Supreme Court justice. We had a Nobel Prize winner, Salvador Luria, a biologist. Uh, the president of the Chase Manhattan Bank. All these people came to the Aspen Institute to get acquainted with... Uh, Asian thought for a week just to keep their brains moving. It's a chance for people at that level to to investigate the enduring questions, they said. And I was there as a resource person to be the young the, the voice of youth, so to speak. And I had this experience with uh, Zen Buddhism which was of interest to to some of the people. And at the time this will be funny to, to younger people because I don't think this is true anymore, but there was a period in the 60s and 70s when the I Ching, the Book of Changes, was common and current. Tricia, did you check into the I Ching? Did you have a copy? Not in Wisconsin? You did. Oh, you said yes. I I thought you said no. Yeah. So we're the same age. And did you have yarrow stocks or coins? You had coins. All right. Now, how many people have three Chinese coins with a square in the middle that they know how to shake to get the trigrams? Could I see hands? Am I the only one? Okay. Back when, if I could transport this room back to the 70s, one-third of the room would have raised their hands. Some I was not hardcore. If you were hardcore, you had yarrow stocks. They went all the way through yarrow stocks, and you do a bundle of 10, and you put them in this finger, and you do a bundle of 10, and you put them in this finger, a bundle of 10. To get one hexagram, you start over, divide them up, do a bundle of 10, and you get the second line of the hexagram, till so you get all six lines. And then you read your hexagram, right? There was a time. Val, did this something that you did? No, nope? you're, you're not old enough. You're old enough. You didn't. Okay, So where I was in the Midwest, man, the I Ching was really hot, and people would say, "Man, I got a, I got a changing line in the third place." No, <laughs> you didn't. Oh, <laughs> and and it, people knew about it, and they would they would ask about the characters, and I had a I had an in because I could read the characters, not just the Everybody used uh, the Wilhelm Baines translation from Princeton University. was the English translation. Everybody had a copy. Carried it around. Something would come up and you'd go, hey, did you ask the Jing, man? No, man, let me check. <whistles> <whistles> Write it down. Oh, dude, who would have thought about that? Yeah. <whistles> yeah, that's really something. <laughs> that was the culture that we did. So you would check the E Jing. For almost anything, you know, boy, I don't know if I should go with her across the country or maybe I should let her go by myself, let her go by herself. Okay, let me check, yeah. Says many obstacles. No, I don't think I'll go. But wait, there's a changing line. Oh, supreme accomplishment. Oh, in that case, maybe I'll go, you know. Perseverance furthers. That was one of the ones. Perseverance furthers. And the funny English of the 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 turn-of-the-century translation from German was common parlance. So people would say things like, it furthers one to cross the great water. Go, yeah, yeah, okay. What does that mean? I don't know, but it sure sounds deep. Mm -hmm. Furthers one to cross the great water. Perseverance furthers. This was really part of the culture. And... It's just this funny emergence of the Zhou Yi, which is one of the five Confucian classics that if you went into downtown Taipei and asked how many contemporary Taiwanese that, that at home, do you regularly consult the Yijing, they would go, are you kidding me? I have a copy online, but I never touch it, they would say, you know, or I know how to find it in, through Google. People don't read the I Jason, anybody at home have an I No, Oh, Yi. It's an old book. That's like saying to everybody, "Okay, do you all read Beowulf on a regular basis?" Beowulf. I don't think so. Uh, Shakespeare, but not Beowulf. So the Zhou Yi is is you know it's a it was old when Confucius was in the world. It's an ancient book. It belongs to the, the the Duke of Joel and Confucius wrote a commentary to it. So in America, in the 60s and 70s, it was current. People had coins, and they would shake them and get six lines and then read it. All right. So, here I am, back to the Aspen Institute. Remember the Aspen Institute? Right. Back to the Aspen Institute. Here I was, talking about Chinese culture in this circle of very learned, very accomplished people, and we came to the Confucian classics. And, uh, I think it was Catherine Graham, said, What's all this that I hear about the Book of Changes? Could anybody know about that? And I said, Well, I happen to have my copy on me, you <laughs> know. I pulled out my translation of the Book of Changes. And uh, she said, Well, what do you do with it? And I said, It's divination. You ask the Joe E, you ask the Book of Changes for advice. And she said, Does it work? Well, it depends. Do you believe? You know, if it works and you don't believe, then it doesn't work. But if you believe, then sometimes you get amazing correspondences. And then the conversation went around the circle, and people talked about how old it is, and did, you know, do, do the Chinese use it? Uh, how does it work? How did it work historically? Did, did people consult it regularly? And then the conversation went into how strange that this whole generation of of American young people picked up the Book of Changes as a cultural thing to do. So um, somebody said, I forget who it was, said, well, can you make it work? They said to me, I said, you bet. And I had my coins with me. I pulled out my three Chinese Chen, you know, the three coins, the round coin with the square square hole in the middle. <clears throat> and so I said, "What? What would you like to ask?" And I, we, we were sitting in a circle, so I jumped over the chairs and sat in the circle on the floor. And I said, "Now everybody has to make your minds quiet, you know, and uh, let's be sincere and see if we can get it to work." So I got a piece of paper, and I said, "All right." Here's the Book of Changes. Uh, who has a question? You have to ask a question that it can give an opinion on. Think of it as, an, as a wise uncle, I said. So Seymour uh, Topping said, all right, tell us, tell, ask the I Ching, what is happening with President Richard Nixon." And this thing called Watergate, he said. Watergate had just made the news. Something was in the air about the president. There were people who were saying somehow the sitting president, Richard Nixon, was involved in a burglary that had first made the news. And, of course, New York Times and Washington Post were interested, having the editors sitting in the circle. You know, what's this about Richard Nixon? Because at the time he was still, you know, people didn't like him, but he was not a th- burglary. He wasn't a burglar. He wasn't involved in a burglary. He wasn't a, a thief. So okay. So I said, good, good, good. EJing down, wrote down, got six lines, dunk, 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 and they were not moving. It was six solid, you know, six unmoving lines, and. Uh, <clears throat> So guess what it was? Song, the last character in our paragraph. Lawsuits. And I said, it says Song, lawsuits. And they all went, no way. He's a president. He's above the law. Nobody prosecutes a president not done. It was done with uh, who? Millard Fillmore or Buchanan got, got impeached, but that was because he was, he was really out there. What do you think Richard Nixon has to do with lawsuits? And I said, I have no idea, but that's what the book says. And they all went, oh, okay, well, I guess it doesn't work, huh? So I said, yeah, there go, just, you know, no. We the conversation moved on to another topic, but I remember that because here I am sitting in the center of the circle of these dignified leaders of society, throwing my Chinese coins to get the I Ching hexagram. Right? And uh, <clears throat> as it turns out, when they when the Watergate when the tapes right when the, they played the tapes that were why did Richard Nixon tape everything he said? What a strange thing to do for somebody whose words were so foul. Anybody read those transcripts? The Nixon transcripts from the White House? Richard Nixon had a potty mouth. Nearly every sentence had one or two dirty words in it.
1: It was always the effing this or the damn this or the Every
0: word, every sentence had some harsh speech in it, and he resigned because it, went, it was clear that if it did go to court, he was going to be convicted of telling people to go break in to the Democratic headquarters to steal the files, called the Watergate case, right? You all don't know about it, but go check it out, you know? So Watergate was huge. Here's an American president who was just a petty thief. He had told burglars to go break into the Democratic headquarters and steal files. Directly, he had done it. And Haldeman and Ehrlichman, his his White House staff, covered, lied. No, no, and the president didn't know anything about it. In fact, he had directly told him to do it. Of course he knew about it. He was... He yeah, had that mentality. So the lawsuit was exactly correct that he was impeached. I mean, he wasn't impeached. He had resigned. He, he quit. But the interesting thing is the sutra says that comes from harsh speech. And Richard Nixon was, he talked dirty. Oh, he used dirty words in every sentence. That was the way he talked. He was a small town, Southern California, lawyer. Right? Nixon came from San Clemente and he was just a lawyer in a law firm and they're in there. Well he didn't change his habits and the tape recordings, he recorded every conversation in the Oval Office. You'd think and they there are they tried to destroy the tapes, but a lot of them were transcribed and found. So anyway, how interesting that in retrospect that I Jing came out pretty accurate. So, um, now, I'm not advocating that people pick up the I Ching, but it remains a very interesting resource. And clearly, I've, I've heard scholars say well, actually, Sherfu said that's not the way you use it. You don't use it as a, you know, a, Asking every day, what should I do? Turn left. Let me check the I Ching. Turn right. Let me check the I Ching.
1: Stop. Let me check the I Ching.
0: You're not supposed to do that, but uh, you can. And the two ways to consult it, by and large, I think there's a lot of ways to consult it, but by and large, is the quick way, which is three coins. And if you if you get you, you decide which side of the coin is heads, which is tails. And you shake the three, and if you get all three the same heads, it's a solid line. If you get all three the same tails, it's a broken line, unchanging. If you get two out of three, it's a broken line or a solid line, changing. And then you keep track. And the first hexagram, if it gets a changing line, says there is movement into the second hexagram. And then you have to decide from one to the next how it progresses. And you read each of the changing lines. So there's a basic commentary, and then there's other commentary. Confucius himself left a commentary called the wings, the wings to the E.G. So that's how it was used. That's the quick way. And it takes about mm, ten minutes to get the whole thing, to get all the information. If you want to be really thorough and you do it religiously, sac- in a kind of a sacred consultation, you use yarrow stalks. And yarrow is the plant, right? And you have these skinny, dry stalks, like a, they're about this long, they're yellow and, and uh, dry, dry sticks. And you take a bunch of them and you divide them 10 at a time. And you get six bundles. And then you count. And the number of stocks that you have gives you a line. You start over. There's, you have the right number, and it gives you either solid or, un, or, or moving, broken or unbroken. And that takes three times longer, but it's much more kind of secure. More, more The universe is speaking through the arrow stocks more than the coins because the coins can be, you know, you can... Shake them more or less and drop them on uneven ground, or you can, people would will the coins. Come on, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Heads, ha! Ah, you know, kind of like shooting craps, you know. So, uh, anyway, that was the E.gene, And it was a hot seller back then. And I have upstairs in our library, it's funny, in the uh, Houston Smith Library upstairs, I think we have four or five copies of the, the Wilhelm Baines translation of the Book of Changes. So, anyway, that was a little bit of cultural history here in the U.S. Books come and go in popularity. Um, Another couple books that were popular at the same time that are absolutely not popular now, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, right, The Prophet, and Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Anybody remember? Your parents have a copy on their shelf. They do, right? Jonathan Livingston Seagull was a really popular spiritual book at the time. And nothing wrong with it. It was an interesting story about a seagull who has thinks deep thoughts. You know? And the point is, it was considered to be a breakthrough book in spirituality at the time, and now not. All right. Anybody have questions or comments about harsh speech? Hmm. <laughs>
2: Yeah, mm.
0: Uh huh. Not harsh speech, but harsh culture. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat>
2: Huh. Hmm.
0: Phil's comment was that the Super Bowl was last week and that there is a, a Coliseum mentality where you put all your energy into destroying the other team and you do whatever it takes to destroy... The other team, and it becomes like a harsh culture that way, because the energy that comes from sports competitions carries over into other parts of life, and so uh, that's Phil's comment. As that seems to be the case, that that we're insensitive to trying to destroy opponents, instead of recognizing that athletic competition is one thing and civil society is another. Is that accurate? Is that... Connie? Connie? Hmm. <laughs> uh-huh OK, OK. interesting. Uh, her question was, what if a four-letter word gets used so much, or a, a, profan- a word of profanity gets used so much that it loses its power as profanity, and it becomes so common? that uh, people just take it as ordinary. Does that word still count as profanity? Yeah, interesting. Um, well, here's an example. And, I, and the answer would be, again, look at intention, probably. Here's an example. Bloody. Bloody is considered really coarse in England. That's not okay in popular Harlins.
1: Oh, bloody hell!
0: Right? If you say that in England, you're right away, you've lowered yours, yourself. That's not okay. And, and the prime minister will not use bloody in public. You know, But when we say bloody, it's like, anybody blink? Not the same, right? It's like, nothing. No big deal. We don't, that doesn't count as as a dirty word but in England it does um, i remember as a kid learning uh, when you got it when you approached a new language you wanted to learn the swear words first right su madre you know and you don't it's like it doesn't is it because they mean nothing they don't those sounds don't carry any weight but as soon as you switch to your own culture of swear words, whoa, suddenly, very different. Go, go wash your mouth out with soap, you know, my mother would say. So, Connie, answering the question, um, that definitely can happen. Uh, if you look at the swear words in Shakespeare, it's hilarious. Because they don't, they don't, you can tell that something was meant by them. Often the way they're delivered more than the words themselves, and uh, certain cultures are famous for their very elaborate curses. All right, you know uh, the French are supposed to have very fancy.
1: I fart in your general direction.
0: You know, uh, if you read Monty Python, it has a whole these whole skits based on elaborate French curses. May you, may your children. How does it go? Seven, the descendants of seven generations of camels, or something like that. You know. So okay, let's take a step back. The words that we use for swear words. I've been saying, you know, potty mouth. That's that's a contemporary way to talk about harsh speech. Um, swear words dirty words, four-letter words, um, curses. Now, as soon as you cross over into more traditional ways, you say, oh, he was cursing. Swear words, or Shakespeare called them oaths. Right? What is a curse? In a traditional society, If you, as much as, look wrong at somebody, people can die. If they say, oh, he gave me the evil eye, people in some societies are so afraid of the power of intention that if somebody gives the evil eye and you trust that they are powerful, people will just die rather than then think about they're just you know because the evil eye has got power so curses are really really powerful may you die the death of a thousand cuts or something like that if you say if you curse somebody curse you that's considered really really bad medicine really powerful in traditional societies so we so commonly use you know, damn this or damn that, or go to hell or things like that. There are, not in in recent memory, probably my grandparents' memory, if you said that kind of stuff, you better be ready to take responsibility because those words are not used lightly. Okay? So I'm just saying that swearing oaths, curses, are considered some of the worst things you can do to someone. And it's just words, but it's what you put into the air. Now, question. What did the Buddha mean when he said, did he mean F in this or F in that? Not necessarily. Maybe he meant something closer to cursing someone. May you be cursed with the plague of a thousand boils, you know, breaking out on your skin. May you have nightmares, you know, whatever, whatever your curse is. So, could be, could be that we have trivialized speech to the point where we've forgotten how powerful words can be. So if we send somebody to hell, it might be not so easy.
2: Joel?
0: Okay. Good question. I'm glad you asked that because I, I hadn't brought that up yet. Joel's question was, Does harsh speech include scolding people without profanity? And remember we went on, what was the page? Uh, Page nine. Here is what the Buddha meant by harsh speech. And I think clearly scolding, there's, you can easily read profanity in four-letter words into this list, right, this long list. But, what I get from this list more is scolding. Which is what? Words intended to hurt. Okay, so I would say the answer is yes. I think definitely. Harsh speech. Now, sometimes people need scolding. Ask any classroom teacher. Right? Kids who had a bad day, don't want to learn, and are just acting out because they're checking out their social power so they cause trouble in the classroom just to see where their limits are, that kid has to be subdued or class is over until you quell the disturbance. Right. So scolding at that point is necessary for a classroom teacher. Moms and dads, Need to scold kids. Kids need to be scolded sometimes before they know where they are. That's just part of growing. You have to get a limit. Sometimes scolding is the only way. So, if what I said is true, then you have to look at intent to figure out when does harsh when does scolding become harsh speech? When is scolding necessary? So, you know, intent is the answer to the question. Was your intent to hurt? Just to to use words that you know cut somebody, and you can. I mean, you can cut with words so easily, especially if people are insecure. Words have triple, ten times more power if somebody is insecure. You can destroy people with a word if they're not clear about their new hairstyle, you know. And they put a lot into that hairstyle because they've been feeling kind of bad about themselves and they're hoping that this, or a new dress, or a new tie, or a new style, you know, a new way. (coughs) If you raise your eyebrow, you can make people, you can crush them, right? We all know about that. So I would say intent is key to answering the question, is scolding harsh speech or not? Okay, let's extend that further. Can you use profanity when it's not harsh speech? Uh, What's your intent? Whenever I hear profanity, my ear hears it. I'm really tuned in to language because I'm a translator. And trying to translate somebody's profanity is really hard as a translator. That just occurred to me. Rarely have I been translating when somebody gives me a four-letter word to translate. That's really hard. It's hard to swear well in another language. Right? Because you don't know how much weight it has. You don't know how to do it. And it can sound really silly if you try to swear in, in a language that's not the one you grew up in. So, that's a good question about scolding more more questions but please keep it clean all right so, no profanity as you ask your question i brought an expert in double tongue speech here tonight Hi there Hi mm, Do you know about double tongue speech?
1: Yeah. It's natural to me. I can't help it. My tongue is already split. Every word I say is double tongue. So I just hiss That's what I do. I see. That's how you get around it? Yeah. Do you ever try to glue your tongue together? I tried once, but it got stuck. I couldn't say anything. Okay. So snakes have a
0: hard time avoiding
1: double-tongued speech, right? Yeah, that's right. So what are you going to do about that? Uh, I'm going to learn a foreign language, basically. And uh, that way, when I... Speak. Nobody will know the difference because who speaks Greek any anyway. So you know. So if I speak Greek, you can't tell if it's straight or double tongue. Greek snakes speak Greek? Mm, not yet. I'm learning. Taking a correspondence course.
0: Okay. Good. You're certainly handsome.
1: Yeah. Well. Anyway, the question I'm interested in is how, do, how did I get a double tongue in the first place? Must have been some uh, mistake in cause and effect back in the past.
0: You think maybe you need to praise, bring, bring people back together with your words?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm studying the sutra, so I can learn how to be born in a future life with one tongue, not two. Okay, good luck. Yeah, motives, that's all. It's your motive, right? Gotta look at your intent. That's right.
0: Okay, good luck, yeah? Sincere, huh?
1: Yeah, I'm studying. I'm uh, protecting the Buddha, you know? Every chance I get when I see a Buddha, I come over the top and protect him from the elements. That's good. Cause and effect. Yeah. Anybody need a protecting? Need an umbrella? It's called rent a snake. Rent a cobra. Yeah. All right. Next time it rains, uh, check me out. All right. I got a Twitter feed. At snake. Okay. All right. So you can rent a cobra
0: for his umbrella effect. Boy. Not easy being a snake. Double tongue. Okay. All right. Well, um, what I thought we might do um, at that point is. Where does it go? Let's see here. Uh, Here we go. What would cause somebody to not be aware that they were speaking harshly? How do you, how do you wind up... Suppose you don't like profanity and you, not, you want to change. How interesting, huh? Suppose you just, everybody around you talks like that, and you don't, and you, or you don't want to anymore. There we go. Kenny, can we boost that up a little bit? Um, how do you change if you want to change? Not so easy. One way... is to think about the retribution. That's why the sutra is so useful. Uh, If we say, um, hearing what the sutra says, maybe I want to investigate my choice of words, then this would be uh, a useful song. It's called Cause and Effect, or Here Comes Karma Now. Wise ones know we Plant a seed With every word and deed Once we plant it Here comes karma now Sometimes good Sometimes bad Makes us happy Makes us sad Choose wisely Here comes karma now Karma is not heaven sent. Karma is not punishment. Sweep the garden, here comes karma now. There's no lawyer you can call. There's no lawyer you can call. The judge and the jury left the hall. Learn the rules, use good sense. This is cause and consequence. Just like the seed is the fruit You know the leaf, then you know the root Can't argue, here comes karma now Conscience is a quiet voice Pay your money, take your choice It's your harvest, here comes karma now It's not luck It's not fate, no room to negotiate No fooling, here comes karma now Plays no favorites, hears no lies Doesn't listen to alibis You can't threaten, you can curse You can't rewire the universe Some are careful with the roots They're contented with the fruits Plant and harvest Here comes karma now Some are careless at the start At the end a broken heart No excuses Here comes karma now Blame the scapegoat Cry and wail Ask the woman with the scales Blind justice tells no lies Who goes home, who goes to jail There ain't no lawyer gets away Ain't no fixer you can pay Just like magic, here comes karma now Just like magic, here comes karma now. Just like magic, here comes karma now. Gotta oil my fingers. So, um, just like magic means, doesn't seem to have a cause, but in fact, absolutely, it's got a cause. And the sutra is the place we find out what I did to make me hear these harsh sounds and get involved in lawsuits or that my words cause conflict. All right. We have looked at lies, double tongue speech, harsh speech, and next week is loose speech. And by golly, that's the one that for me, um, (coughs) probably in six years of keeping silence, the day, the, the evening, the night that Marty and I came to that part of the sutra was the turning point in my going deeper into the sutra. When I saw What's coming up next week, um, for the first time, I felt that I was looking into a mirror in the sutra. I saw my face. This next passage is the most important passage of the sutra at that point for me. It changed my life. And um, it was bitter, I have to say, in a good way. It was hard to swallow, but truly it was the case that bitter medicine cures the illness, but it's really hard to swallow. Good medicine is bitter to the tongue, but it cures your illness. This next paragraph coming up next week was the one that did it for me. And uh, I've talked about it before, but this is the actual paragraph itself seeing the effect of loose, frivolous speech on retribution. Okay, that's coming up next week. So, we've reached the end of our time. Please do contemplate uh, our choice of words and see if your circle, your friends, use profanity a lot. How often do you hear Four-letter words. How often does the F word come into your ears in any given day? Um, Check out the comments on YouTube for any particular video clip. You'll be amazed at uh, the amount of profanity that's available in public discourse these days. Pretty astounding. And you might consider looking for alternatives. It's all up to us what we want. Here comes karma now. So let's uh, dedicate merit and move on. Please make a wish and send out the goodness that comes from joining together with wholesome friends in a place where we only heard a couple dirty words tonight, not many. So Saturday night you can pretty much count on getting a break from profanity, one would hope. And, uh, no, I don't know what you're all saying after the lecture, but during the lecture, at least, there's less, okay? So that's a good thing, and you can transfer that out to the world. And uh, apparently, Morocco and Yemen are now experiencing demonstrations. The ripple effect of Cairo is going out across the world. One would hope that Beijing would pay attention. The news didn't get there. 'Cause our hearts are one. This world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate.